0: Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Chris Duvos is back on the program, joining us today from Palo Alto. Chris founded Ahoy Capital in 2018 to back non-conformists in early stage VC. He's long been a pioneer investor in the micro VC movement, having spent decades as an allocator with VIA, the investment fund for, for foundations, and Princeton University's endowment. Chris, welcome back.
1: Oh, great to be back. Thanks for having me.
0: Could you imagine a better time to be back on the program?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I got to tell you, we were shrugging off like, you know, multi-hundred point moves in the Dow is just like... Intraday hiccups. I mean, it's it's volatile as I'll get out. We've got you know kind of a, a pandemic unfolding. You know, I, I almost feel like uh, you know my alter ego is Super LP with a red T-shirt. I feel like this is you know time for me to come in and, and rip my you know my mild mannered suit off and uh, and have my <laughs> red T-shirt on display.
0: It's time. It's time to go in that phone booth and uh, get your superhero powers out. But. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, bring us up to speed quickly. So Ahoy Capital, you founded in 2018. I don't remember exactly when you were on the program last, but you were certainly at VIA at the time. So um, can you give us kind of a brief intro as to what you're doing with Ahoy?
1: Sure. So uh, so the genesis of Ahoy actually uh, you know, starts uh, with a little bit of a, a sad story because my business partner at VIA passed away unexpectedly. And um, and as we thought about what was best for you know VIA's business, and uh, and what I you know built within VIA, uh, it made a lot of sense for me to lift out the funds that I'd been managing and drop them into Ahoy. And so uh, specifically, you know, we uh, were doing you know kind of hybrid, you know, uh, fund to fund slash you know direct vehicles, probably in the ratio of kind of two thirds, one third, um, and just kind of continuing what you know what we had been doing. And, uh, and you are right in kind of what you said in the intro, I love backing robust nonconformists with the courage of their convictions. Um, in fact, I was actually just, uh, just on a call, um, a catch-up call with Adam Draper, who's a, a swell dude, and he used a phrase which I, I love, um, and I, I want to pilfer, but I want to give him full credit. He says he loves investing in, uh, in you know, people at the precipice of human audacity. And, uh, and I love that. I just, you know, I'm, I'm doubling down, especially as we're seeing a lot of dislocation, you know, in the portfolio right now. And, and we're, we're doubling down on a bunch of, um, a bunch of our co-investments, um, you know, it's people doing really exciting, you know, dynamic, you know, kind of life-changing stuff. Um, you know, the, obviously the digital stuff like zoom and, and slack and things like that have, you know, done really well in the first stages here of this pandemic, you know, but as the world kind of settles out, some of the other stuff in our portfolio we're you know, super excited about, um, and uh, and actually now is a great time to you know to pick up some ownership when uh, when others stumble.
0: Got it. Have you made many new uh, fund commitments since uh, officially starting Ahoy?
1: Uh, so we uh, we started Ahoy in mid 2018 and have deployed. Um, uh, uh almost actually at this point the totality of the fund um we did commitments to 11 underlying managers the vast majority of whom had been kind of long-term relationships like first round and and true and and others um and there are a few that were kind of new to the program as well like uh ubiquity which is uh Sunil Nagaraj yeah, um he's awesome great. and uh and so and then we've done a bunch uh we've probably done at this point I think Ah uh, coming up on twenty co-investments, uh, five or six of which have been in the last uh, last two weeks, which is uh, actually super exciting. In fact, the thing that like makes me most happy is uh, this one company that I've loved uh, from afar for a long time. I got to know the founder and whatnot. Um, they're in a great position, but they're like, you know, we have, you know, our cash out date is, you know, September, October, but we want to have like an extra, you know, six months of runway, which could get us to cash flow break even. Mm-hmm. Um, and literally as we were on this, uh, you know, in our chat right now, an email came in, um, you know, confirming our allocation in this little, uh, you know, extension route. So it's stuff like that that's happening where, you know, as long as the world, you know, doesn't, um, uh, you know as long as the world doesn't you know kind of revert to a barbaric state um you know we should you know we should be in really good good place well, <laughs> a friend of mine said he called me up as an aside um, two weeks ago or three weeks ago now this is you know kind of early march um and he started buying equities right on the on the way down he was you know he's got this rule where he you know, legs into the market at 20%, 25 and 30% down. And he goes at 30% down, I'm all in because, you know, that should make money. Um, and if it gets much worse than that, then the stocks, you know, the money I spent on stocks would have been better spent on like ammunition and a wheat, uh, a wheat mill for my, a flour mill for my <laughs> basement. <laughs> like, Okay. Okay. Prepper. <laughs>
0: crazy. Crazy. Well, look at that. You know, you're, you're actively cutting checks. Everyone's burying their head in the sand and, uh, you guys are, are wiring money. So applaud you for that. Um,
1: I mean, it's 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 Warren Buffett one hundred and one. Be you know, be greedy when others are are fearful, and vice versa. And then right. you know, if you can be a provider of liquidity when liquidity is scarce, um, you know. Now, there's a a friend of mine always used to say, "There's a fine line between being right and being early." All <laughs> <Yeah>, right. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? We I may be singing a different tune in six months.
0: Well, hopefully not, but. Um you know, I want to talk to you about sort of the allocator side of things. Um, sure. So, you know, first and foremost, we we do see a number of allocators, you know, they have asset allocation targets, uh, particularly mm-hmm. for private equity and VC. And those targets are are significantly thrown out of whack with a, a bear market of this sort, uh, public yep. bear market. Um, can you talk to us a bit about what the denominator effect is that you've witnessed? How that works?
1: Sure, sure. And this is uh, you know a really classic challenge I think for for all allocators, um, and it's been exacerbated by something that that I call the numerator effect. Um, but first, I'll describe the de- denominator effect, and, and basically, you know, it's if you have if you're a billion dollar endowment, say, and uh, and you have. Uh, uh, a 10% target to private equity, which includes ventures, so you know, kind of private assets, private um, assets. Uh, you know, that 10% target suggests that you want to have 100 million in net asset value. Right now, to get to that net asset value, you actually have to overcommit because, as you know, everybody who's listening knows, um, you know, you got, uh, you know, you make commitments, and then the the funds draw those commitments down, invest in companies that grows in value over time. But you've got to be making those commitments. So, typically, not only will you know our hypothetical billion dollar endowment. Have hundred million dollars in, in net asset value at their ten percent target, but they'll also have anywhere between another fifty and one hundred and fifty million in undrawn commitments. Um, now, what happens is if the market goes down, you know, thirty percent, um, you know, or, or if your endowment value actually, and I, I did some quick math, um, you know, for the four weeks following the high watermark of the the Dow, um, I used uh, the Vanguard Wellington Fund as a proxy because that's a nice sixty five thirty five. Um, balance fund, um, and that fund was down thirty percent. So you could say, like, a, an endowment that's like sixty-five percent stock or equity exposure and thirty-five percent um, fixed income exposure will be down that much. And, and we, you know, we can get into debates about stale pricing, the privates, and all that stuff. That's a whole other story. But just imagine that you had a billion dollars. Now you have seven hundred million. Yep. that means you know you you're not going to adjust typically as an allocator. You're not going to adjust the value of your uh, Uh, of your um, private assets that dynamically you're going to wait for quarter to come in. And by the way, those prices are going to be stale anyhow um, because you know, people typically don't remark their portfolios that aggressively. Mm -hmm. So that hundred million dollars is going to be stuck there. And it used to be 10% of your endowment. Now it's 14% of your endowment. And so now you're like, holy smokes. Oh, and by the way, those capital calls keep coming in. So that's the denominator effect is like your 10% just turned into 14% Yep. Um, or whatever one-seventh is. Just by um,
0: nature of the, the public and fi- fixed holdings going down.
1: Exactly. That's exactly right. And it's this is a particular problem for private assets because of the stale price problem, right? Like if you had some way to mark these dynamically on a day-to-day basis to the public markets, you might mark these down, but that's actually part of, you know, not only is private equity return enhancing, but it's also diversifying. So it's not actually clear from a theoretical standpoint that you'd want to even, right? Yeah,
0: PMEs look great, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. right? Um,
0: (laughs) At least for now. So
1: Right. So, yeah, so now you got your, you know, your 10% that's become 14% of your endowment. Oh, and by the way, like all your private equity guys are, are, you know, including venture like, hey, we see lots of value. Let's um, let's uh, you know let's uh, uh, let's draw some capital, and so now all of a sudden you're like scarce on liquidity, right? Because the market's down, and now you've got to sell something, so you've got to lock in a loss. That's a really uncomfortable situation to be in, and that's you know the the phrase I use is you know the public market becomes the ATM for the private capital calls, and you know that balance keeps getting lower and lower, and you're like you know it's like um, you know, it's like going to the ATM Sunday morning after a you know wild night out on Saturday. You're just like, "Holy smokes, what happened to all, mm. all my cash?" Um, so that's the denominator effect. Um, the is it, and Chris?
0: Is that yeah? Is it typical for the undrawn commitments? So I've made a commitment to a fund. Uh, let's say fifty percent of that has been called. The other fifty percent. Is it typical for that to be invested in Publix?
1: Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question. So the the money that's undrawn, it's like technically a liability, right? Like it's sitting there, people, yeah. people track it, but they don't count it as part of their value, because there's no value. And so the, the question you're asking is a really interesting one. Um, and this is like, you know, a little bit of inside baseball, maybe even too theoretical, but the very short answer to the question is, like, the money's got to come from somewhere. Right. Right. And so... Uh, so do you, you know, the reality is most people take it out of their cash, you know, and fixed income portfolios. Yep. But then there's an interesting question because if you're thinking about it as a liability, this is where you get like kind of theoretical about it. If you're thinking about it as a liability, then you're actually creating a drag because it's supposed to be an equity like exposure. So if you're some, what some people do is they shift, you know, they, they incorporate, they, they increase their cash and fixed income positions to be able to meet capital calls, you know, over time as they make, um, you know, because they don't want to be caught in the volatility of the, the public markets. So the reality dragged is
0: dragged down on returns for that allocated dollars, even though it's not marked that way.
1: Exactly. It's, it's like actually a non calculated cost of private equity if you mm-hmm. do it that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've thought in the past, like, could you do something where you know to, to give people the full equity exposure could i do something instead of like raising a fund and drawing down over time could i just say okay your commitment is 10 million dollars give me 10 million dollars and i'm going to equitize a portion of that like I, maybe maybe i keep you know 98 percent of it in cash and buy you know kind of S and P calls or something to like create some equity, you know, exposure. So you're getting an equity return on these dollars. Actually, I'm getting the equity return and passing that along to you. So there's, you know, there's less of, of that chance. But the reality is most people don't think about it yeah. that thoroughly or, or robustly. So you're kind of just like, all right, whatever. um, so anyhow, you know but like the denominator effects a problem what we've had in the last you know several years is also a numerator problem right which is like you know these venture funds have been coming back so frequently and raising larger funds and the, you know we people have been on this kind of treadmill of uh you know of commitments um and by the way and and happily the you know the the valuations have been ballooning although it's not entirely clear you know whether that was you know, an accurate thing or just a function of the money in the market. Um, So now you're sitting here and actually what your 10% target, you know, in our hypothetical endowment, your 10% NAV target, you know, every quarter you get like valuation increases and that thing's creeping up to 10, 12. And by the way, you're committing and people are drawing faster and you might find yourself with a 10% target sitting at 14, 15, 16%. So you're already over, um, you know, over, you know, target considerably. And then the market went down applying the denominator effect. And now all of a sudden you're like, holy smokes, like my private equity, you know, is, is, you know, way out of whack. So I'll tell you just anecdotally, you know, I've been talking to some of my investors who tend to be, you know, large, uh, sorry, in terms mid midsize, so kind of 500 million to 3 billion uh, in assets, um, endowments and foundations, And a lot of them are like, you know, we just have thrown our, you know, kind of commitment plan out the window for the moment because we're already over, you know, over allocated and, uh, and, uh, you know, with the markets down, we're kind of, you know, we're kind of in a tough spot. We can't really, you know, can't really manage, um, uh, you know, this, this private exposure, particularly by the way, when they're like potentially good bargains in the public markets, right? Sure. Um, right, and Everyone that's one liquidity of liquidity right now. Exactly. Right. The, the 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 return to you know being a provider of liquidity just went way up.
0: So on on the numer- numerator side, just so I understand this. Um, So in the same portfolio, let's say you know I've allocated a uh, hundred million to venture, but because of ballooning asset values in the venture market. Uh, right or wrong, uh, if mm-hmm. if you've invested that hundred million, but the value of that portfolio is now two hundred million, then you're mm-hmm. you're extra overweighted. Is that your
1: are that's that's a fair way to describe it? And and even peeling that onion a little bit further, right? Like everybody is constantly doing, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, forecasts, multi year forecasts, and. Uh, and they um, they take into account a certain pace of funds returning to market and capital calls and and uh, you know valuation increases. In fact, um, Seth Alexander and Dean Takahashi, when they were in the Yale Investments Office, wrote a great paper about this about how to forecast you know your commitment pace and your your value. And so basically, you're like you know planting a field right and hoping that when you know harvest time comes you know you get the right amount of you know corn and the right amount of you know apples and the right amount of whatever right got it um right but the problem is like so you rewind to like 2012 2013 everybody's like oh you know we're going to be committing to folks on a you know who are going to be coming back on a 3 year cycle Right. Meanwhile, the venture world has kind of turned into like a two year fundraising cycle, yep. which there's a whole another slew of problems with that, because, you know, the, by the time the telltales, like, you know, as an allocator, I'm sitting here and I'm like, you know, I need to, you know, you make a one fund commitment. It's really a two fund commitment because you won't know enough. Right. And as long as the strategy hasn't changed, you're going to go back in mm. that fund
0: And you but lose by the, the time, time- diversity.
1: Well, and you lose time diversity exactly. Now you're almost like making a three fund commitment before you have real information about how <laughs> good these people are, right? Wow. Right, and so so anyhow, the so the wheel's been spinning faster, and and on top of that, we've had the happy you know kind of what you allude to is we've had the happy coincidence of these valuations ballooning. The problem is if those valuations aren't real, um, you know, then as an endowment, you're spending you know, real dollars based on paper profits. Um, you know, and, and I know by the way, one, uh, one group that is, you know, when, when we work, you know, blew up their um, uh, you know, they had over a hundred million dollars of exposure to we work, you know, that went to zero. Right. So, um, so wow. that's kind of crazy. Right. Um, but you know, but for a long time they were feeling pretty good about that, you know, hundred million dollars, right? Sure. And so, you know, but you, even that was like, you know, that would have thrown their, um, you know, their their allocation out of whack, you know, while it was while it was active.
0: Well, maybe it helps with the numerator problem for them.
1: <laughs> well, it does. I mean, the, the the two ways, sadly, the two ways you deal with the numerator problem are um, the happy way, which is distributions, right? The bula and the kula. Um, or the the difficult way which is stuff gets gets marked down, and that sucks
0: yeah it, it almost feels like you can't compare the value of private holdings uh in March of 2020 to the val- to public uh, within a portfolio. It seems like there should be different time marks or something for different types of asset classes
1: well i look I think that's true. I think you know the the challenge is. You know, everybody who is in endowment management or or you know, even broadening, you know, you know, institutional money management, you know, read David Swenson's book, right? And even before that, it really started with the Harvard Business School case in ninety-five, when basically the lessons were like Yale's endowment, you know, outstanding endowment performance was a function of its, you know, illiquidity and idiosyncrasy. Um, but you know, particularly, you know, they, they can buy Longer dated, further out of the money options, you know, than anybody else, um, and uh, and a big part of that was you know going to privates um, because they just had a you know such a long horizon. And it's interesting because I I teach the Yale case every now and again at a couple of business schools, and I you know I ask kids what's the lesson of the case, and they say oh you know be illiquid, have an equity bias, you know all the all the lessons from the case. I said actually the real lesson here is don't try this at home. <laughs> right, because because this stuff's really hard to do. Like yeah. executing it is just so hard to do, and then you get people like the, just the portfolio construction. Forget about the access and and you know building your portfolio, but like the like mechanics of the portfolio construction, all the stuff we've just been talking about for the past you know ten minutes is really really hard, and you need to be really sophisticated at it. And a lot of people get skittish and and. Um, you know, and don't know. There are a lot of really hard conversations. You know, kind of uh, getting teed up right now.
0: Well, look at how many people have the David Swenson playbook and can't apply it. Right, uh, mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. takes remarkable knowledge and discipline. Um. So, so Chris, how have you seen LPs rebalance uh, investment portfolios? You know what? What's the reaction that you've seen in you know previous crises?
1: Well, so, you know, I I was around, I, I joined Princeton in mid-01, um, and that was after the capitulation. And we saw, uh, you know, and it was a it was a grinding downturn. I mean, that was what was crazy about 01, 02, even in early 03, it was like every single quarter. Your portfolios, even your best managers, were down twenty percent quarter over quarter over quarter. You're just like, nice. oh my gosh, what's It's like water torture, right? Um, and so, uh, so uh, I mean, it was it was really tough and grinding. And so, in a sense, that fixed itself because so many of the values went to like we had like brand name funds, which today people would like stab themselves to get into, is sitting at like 0.4 x's, right? So, <laughs> so the, the numerator kind of fixed itself. But what happened is a lot of people sold, right? This was like the the you know one of the real beginnings of the um you know the first like great flourishing of the secondary market. Got it. And there were a lot of great secondaries to be had, especially like less sophisticated investors. Interesting. Um it was it was you know just just left and right. Um in 08 it was interesting because the downturn was very sharp. And then the recovery was very sharp and people didn't really capitulate. And so from a private equity standpoint, you know, it really, uh, it really, you know, the global financial crisis was not as horrific. I mean, maybe more so on the buyout side because you had some, you know, liquidity crunches, but on the venture side, it was, it was NBD, as the kids say, no big deal, Um, but we did see, and actually when I was at TIFF, we bought a few secondaries. So people do some portfolio management with secondaries and we bought the portfolio of, uh, part of the portfolio of a very prominent university. Um, but I will tell you that was not a, you know, that was a new sheriff in town and they were, uh, you know, cleaning up the book and they just wanted that stuff off. But Mm -hmm. famously during that period, and this is reported in Bloomberg, so it's all public, Um, you know, Stanford tried very hard to sell their portfolio. What happens is that, you know, you have huge bid ask spreads. And so it takes a while. So you have to see, you know, the initial stages, nothing's really going to happen. Then like, if there's a real downturn, like six, nine months from now, people will start saying, we have a problem over in the private side of our book. And then, uh, and then, you know, kind of nine to, 15 months out, people start sale processes. And there's a lot of secondary capital out there that's actually underwritten to pretty pretty low hurdle rates. Um, uh, high IRRs, but low multiple rates. And so, you know, that's when you can start seeing some trans, uh, you know, transactions take place, but that's like 15 months out.
0: Interesting. It, it, when these secondary transactions happen, an institution, you know, sells off their position in a fund, Um Often, I guess it's a changing of the guard. So maybe new portfolio manager and so totally different mindset. But is that institution also going to lose access to future funds by doing that? Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, yeah. It's the GPs just get so pissed about it. Because, you know, if you're like a premium GP, you're, um, you know, you're carefully curating, you know, to some degree your LP base. Yeah. And now you've got, you know, you know, Bob's College of Knowledge. You know, just <laughs> sold their stake to some secondary guy. He's right. like, "All right, well, that sucks." You know, you can go screw Bob. Um, and so, I think once you sell, you're 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 in the bad graces forever. There's a real stigma around it. I think that's a little bit less true today than than it was, but but it's still, I think, a real thing.
0: I mean, it feels like that could be the big loss because if you need the liquidity for whatever reason you need the the liquidity right but if you mm-hmm. if you've correctly identified and that's a huge assumption but if you've correctly identified the emerging funds of the future or you know the the new venture franchises of the future you've just lost your option to invest in future funds
1: you have you absolutely have um i think Um, especially in, you know, kind of new leaders of the future. Um, You know, I think people, especially, you know, either they're they're more likely they're small managers and either they are, uh, you know, going to stay small, in which case there's no room for you to get back in, or they're going to grow and they'll be pissed at all the people who didn't treat them right, um, you know, uh, uh, as they were, you know, going on the way up. Now, I'll flip that around a little bit. I I do think that's true. as my Law school professor uh, friend always says, you know, don't fight the hypo, but I'll fight the hypothetical on this one a little bit. Like, you know, at some level, um, you know, we really overstate the persistence of returns in venture. I think there is persistence. I mean, it's definitely... uh, you know I've I built a career on that and, mm-hmm. and I've seen it in, in practice but the persistence isn't as strong as people you know kind of think it is and especially now in a world where you know there are a thousand for instance you know micro VCS um, at some level uh, you know the if you tell me the franchise of the future I'm going to tell you like to name the franchise of the future I'll say which one got the luckiest right and you know it, it yeah, I'm shocked by you know some of the funds that are doing well and some that are you know that are not. Um, and so you know you sell these things and you know maybe they do well, maybe they don't. But you know if you needed the money, you needed the money.
0: Mm-hmm. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com. Forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Yeah. So let's talk more about sort of the fund manager side and, um, you know, VCs that are trying to operate through this. Uh, first off, you know, what guidance would you provide to fund managers with regards to capital calls?
1: Yeah. So again, back to this point about, you know, the, the money's coming from somewhere at, you know, their LPs and most often it's, it's coming out of some, um, you know, now depreciated, uh, uh, you know, asset. Yep. Um, And so capital calls are, are not, uh, you know, not great, not terrifically well received during, during downturns. Um, And so I would tell people, you know, this is a time, you know, the advice that we hear a lot of VCs giving their portfolio companies is tighten your belt and make your cash last, you know, 18 months, two years, whatever. And I think that's also true for, for funds, right? Like unless you're seeing a screaming fat pitch now is not the time to be doing investments. Um, And I think we're starting to see that kind of filter through the market a little bit. I I think, look, the bar should always be high, but you you know, you should also think about your LPs, the people you're calling capital from are seeing, you know, if they like to stock, um, you know, in in January or early February, or had a manager who liked to stock more, more typically, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that thing's now 40% off or 50% off. Right. That's, and by the way, and you can, you know, uh, (laughs) you can get some liquidity. Why, (laughs) why are you asking people during the time when liquidity is most scarce to like give you capital so that you can then lock it up for another eight years. Right. Right. Or, or whatever the liquidity horizons are today. Right. Like, you know so so i think it's i think people really you know when they call capital really need to be able to articulate how they're seeing you know kind of once a decade kind of deals it's
0: amazing how the uh the tesla bears finally got their day <laughs> <laughs> right um, well what i mean what about the counterpoint for the vcs you know the vcs that say look we got to stay in business these are commitments uh we can get value right now mm-hmm you know what do you well so, the so and
1: look and yeah the, that's a great counterpoint um and by the way p- part of that counterpoint and the one that i'm hearing you know on the daily is like oh look at all these great companies that were built in you know 0809 right like yep yeah I, I you know i hear you know this we this is a i think the the agricultural world is fecundity we we, we, are, we live in a fecund you know kind of ecosystem here that continues to to you know spit out you know amazing uh, products throughout all cycles what i'd say though is the thing that i heard the most in 01 was that time diversity was important right and this was on the heels of people going to a, you know even in in 99 a lot of people raised like two funds in one year even right they had mm-hmm. like a january fund and a december fund um and the wheel was spinning so fast that um that you know, you'd sit down and talk to people in kind of 02, 03. And they're like time diversity is really important. And there's nothing wrong with thinking about, you know, everybody's in this like two year raising new fund every two years mindset. There's nothing wrong with raising a fund every four years or every five years. That's how it used to be. Right. And so if somebody says to me, you know, we see value, I'm like, yeah, there's value and there's value, right? 20% off is still 80% off. Yeah. Right right? I want like you know, you got guys on the buyout side who can buy 50 cent dollars. yep right don't tell me like you know and and one of the deals I love and you know I violated my own advice on this. So the deal I love yeah, that we did this week that we just closed on yesterday um, is a company in the you know they they started fundraising looking at you know at a, a b round at a 40 pre and they cut it to 32 pre. And I'm like, Hey, you know, that's great. That's great value. And especially with their customer base, they got a lot of government contracts and stuff like great revenue profile, et cetera. But I, I, you know, I'm so excited about the company that I did it um, enthusiastically, but on the flip side, you know, these have to, you know, there are people elsewhere in your LPs portfolios who are like, we are seeing not just like screaming deals potentially, but like, you know, once you know, once in in you know, once a year, once a once every five year kind of deal. So I don't know, we'll we'll see. But like, yeah, you know, I I don't have much sympathy for GPS. Who, by the way, you know, every startup I talk to is, you know, everybody in the you know, like I was just on the phone with a company that we're not investors in, um, and they're doing a, an across the board twenty percent pay cut, and uh, and the CEO's taking zero salary until until they raise their next round of financing.
0: Yep, I've got one. Uh, of those.
1: I don't know. Right. Exactly. I don't know a single GP who's, is cutting their own, you know, take home pay or management fee. Mm. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not like, you know, I'm not about to, you know, kind of join the Bernie bros, but um, you know, but GPs have a pretty good, if they have to like wait another six or nine months to, to raise <laughs> a fund because they've deployed slower. I shed no tears.
0: Well, you know one now, Chris. <laughs> I know, um, I know. Uh okay. So yeah, let's talk a bit about more about the the fundraising for VCs. Uh who have you seen had success raising in down markets? I mean, mm. maybe not specific names, but you know, more who are who can win and what are what's the makeup of the the successful fundraisers in the down markets?
1: You know, so it's interesting. Um uh and, and it's it's really relevant because a call I was on yesterday with a GP whose fund was like three x oversubscribed, and then these guys are what I'd call like a um, you know, there's the A tier, which is probably like fifteen funds, right? And then there's like the the A minus tier, which is probably like the next fifty, and these guys are probably in the A minus tier, and they went from three x oversubscribed to like you know, seven-tenths X oversubscribed, or seven-tenths X subscribed, Um, right? And um, for a first close that's imminent. Um, And a big, like their big anchor tenant, who's a very savvy investor and very happy with you guys, is like, look, we're out right now because we're re-underwriting everything in the portfolio. We're like taking the endowment into war. Um, And that's a kind of scary talk. Um, and it makes me think, you know, if we see the downturn continue, like who knows, you know, we've actually had a bull market since the bear market since the end of February, right? Like that's what's so crazy. And here we are in, in late <laughs> yeah. March. Um, you know, the market's up 20% off the bottom. That's crazy. So, uh, but um, uh, it makes me think of 000102. Um, and what I, the reason I, invoke those is like fundraising in 01 and 02 was like, I think, you know, we could look it up. I want to say it was like $0. I mean, it wasn't, but like, it was de minimis. And so who got raised during those times? I remember there was like a big freeze. And then in like early mid 03, Sequoia came out and raised whatever fund that was. And that was 395 million, which seemed like a seems like a lot of money. I mean, not today, but like, like back then, you know, I think they had their their prior fund had been a billion. And so they raised it 395. And basically I was talking to like a Sandhill, you know, big wig type. And the guy said to me, he said, you know, Sequoia is throwing down the gauntlet. Like who is going to raise more money than Sequoia capital. And so that kind of capped um, the, the, you know, the, the size. Right. And I remember that Greylock raised 400 and, and you had to have like, balls to raise you know more than 400 and that kind of rationalized the industry almost but you know but I look back and you know a 102 were so quiet and 03 we had like a decent normal year like a 10 20 billion dollar year and then 4 you know five you know it's good good stuff so who gets raised? it was like you know total flight to quality everybody's re-underwriting their portfolios um, you know, which by the way, then fast forward to 08, what was interesting is that some of the people, the market got really barbelled at that time. And some people uh, doubled down on you know big brand names, right? And other people though were looking for the shiny new penny. So that was when we saw the first like real explosion in micro VC. So at that time I had already been, you know, I was like a fund ahead of that. Um or two ahead of that you know kind of timing but like you know we saw you know guys like you know first round and floodgate and true really kind of flourish and mm-hmm. you know come in their own and then there are a lot of funds that you know kind of got established you know baseline was also part of that first wave um they were raising like during the financial crisis um ia out of new york but then like 09 10 11 we saw a lot of funds just pop up and it was just a lot of people looking for the shiny new penny And because the downturn wasn't so severe, they were able to, um, uh, they had cash to deploy. Um, so look, I, my guess is if we end the year at like Dow 25,000, um, you know, anywhere between Dow 21 and 25,000, you know, if you've got a competent track record, you'll, you'll, you know, be able to, you'll be in the, in the mix at your LPs, um, uh you know it'll be kind of business as usual. If we're below twenty to twenty-one thousand, there are gonna be a lot of hard conversations, right? And everybody's gonna be focused on high grading their portfolio. So what are they gonna focus on? They're gonna focus on people who have, you know, some demonstrated sustainable competitive advantage. So you got, as a GP, you have to figure out how to articulate that. Yep. They're gonna focus on people who are really good at communicating throughout. So like don't forget your LPs. You you can't you know you can't be a pest during this time. Like just just over communicate. Um, they're going to focus on people who were really honest with themselves um, and did good portfolio triage, um, and they're going to focus on people who have uh, at least an espoused value, if not a, a value in action of generating liquidity, right? Like there are people who are you know these like go go momentum. Let's ride this bull until it you know dies or we you know escape the um you know the bull ring uh <laughs> you, you know uh you know those kinds of people like i, I got to tell you i look askance at any of these uh you know we work investors and just kind of like you know at some point especially if people are in early like at some point you, you know you knew that this valuation was way ahead of itself and if you didn't sell at least some of your stake into that um you're not serious about uh, about liquidity you're just you're just trying to like you know rise your moon met- rocket
0: interesting how how important are the metrics for like young funds like 17 18 vintage you know when do the are the do the metrics always matter or is is it a certain level of maturity on the vintage of the fund where you really start? yeah
1: at- you know it, it's an interesting question because uh you know there's a certain amount of time during which the metric like first I think Cambridge doesn't start reporting Benchmarks until, you know, the third year of, of you know, a vintage. Yep. And there's a good reason for that because there's so much management fee drag. Um, uh, and, uh, and you're usually, you know, you've done one round of finance, you know, new round of financing companies, so you got one round of markups or failures. Um, so it, it doesn't really matter that much. But the thing I've also found is there's actually like less value for me in numbers of late. Uh, of headline numbers like the cambridge numbers you know i call this you know syndrome syndrome right like um uh y- if you remember the movie uh, the Incredibles, like the f- the first one the bad guy was syndrome and he says you know he wants to give everybody superpowers because he's so resentful of the heroes um uh he says you know <laughs> when everybody's super nobody will be right and you know i li- literally every fun that crosses my transom has like a 30% IRR. And I'm just like, how does everybody have 30% IRRs? It's all bullshit. Right. So, um, interesting, you know, I'm like kind of over it, right? Like uh, what I really value are people who are investing in, you know, really differentiated companies, right? Like there are a lot, it's interesting because when I say differentiated, that's like such a throwaway term. What I mean is companies that are doing something novel. Um, and right. And what I mean by that is Sunil's Sunil's fun. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, That's exactly right. Right. Like somebody tweeted a while back, they said, you know, it used to be the venture was about finding people who had done something, you know, new and interesting and then marketing the hell out of it. And it seems like too often now we're skipping step one and going straight to step two. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And that's crazy. That's crazy stuff. Um, and so short story long, I'm like, I'm like, look, you know, um, uh as I look at new funds, like and and I've known Sunil, I I almost invested in this fund but one. I'm sad I didn't. Um, you know, as I was talking to him, you know, for fun too. I'm like, look, you're doing really interesting stuff. Um, you know, the 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 companies that you're you know you're you're working with, and by the way, you talk to his entrepreneurs, people absolutely love his engagement. He spends a day a week coding, right? Like he's there, you know, he's finding novel things and helping them you know, create value and help set the DNA, you know, in the earliest stages of the company's life, that's the kind of stuff I get super excited about. You know, you you get some programmer out of Twitter who's like, you know, I'm like one of the cool, you know, cool San Francisco kids. That's completely uninteresting because you're just, that's just a recipe for, you know, getting into, you know, bid up momentum deals.
0: Yep. Yep. Well good, well, I think we covered most of what i wanted any Any final thoughts for fund managers or um, thoughts on allocators at this at this time?
1: Yeah, you know what I just say to fund managers is you know back to just yeah, I can't bear enough repeating you know communication is is critical yep. um you know as as the markets are volatile you know, even if you're not hearing back from your Lps as you're sending out misses, just keeping them up to date on on the you know the 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 stuff that's you know, working well in your portfolio, which people need that dose of optimism, but also helping them understand, you know, realistically what what's not working, right? Like, you know, somebody tweeted the other day, you know, uh, I just went through my pile of quarterly reports and uh, amazing, all my venture funds are doing really well. Um, BS, yes, there's like a huge, you know, Toll on people's portfolios and a huge human toll within their portfolios, and we need to be honest and forthright about that, without losing sight of the fact that we're doing some of the most exciting and inspiring, you know, uh, uh, crafting of the future world in our ecosystem. Um, that you know that, that that deserves its own kind of praise and merit.
0: Well, whether it's the allocators, the fund managers, or the the founders themselves, we're we're all going to be managing some tricky stuff. At least for the foreseeable future. Uh, but thanks to folks like you, hopefully it'll be a little easier. So, Chris, thanks, thanks a lot for the uh, for joining us on short notice and and helping us all, you know, through this tricky time.
1: My pleasure, and best of luck to you and all your companies and all all your listeners and courage out there.
0: <laughs> Appreciate that, Chris. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us.